0: Hello and welcome to the School for CEOs podcast. My name is Gemma Soul, and I'm delighted to share not one but two leadership stories with you in this episode. These two leaders began their careers as colleagues in the armed forces, although they each have different leadership stories to share. Peter Macdonald is an experienced leader and financier. His career began with 11 years of military service with the Royal Marines. In 1992 he left the military to join Goldman Sachs, becoming a partner in 2004. Peter worked extensively across Europe and Asia, becoming co-head of the Securities Division for Pan-Asia. Previously he had successfully established Goldman's Securities business in mainland China, and in 2010 he joined Bank of America Merrill Lynch as Head of Equities for Asia Pacific. Peter was appointed Vice-Chairman of BAML Asia, before returning to the UK in 2013. Today, he's chairman of Castle European, an Edinburgh-based renewable energy company. Joining him is Martin Smith, who had an extremely distinguished career in the Royal Marines, where he reached the post of Commandant General. Reporting directly to the First Sea Lord, that's the Chief of the Royal Navy, Martin was responsible for the effectiveness of the Royal Marines, a force of some 7,000 commandos. His last post in the military was NATO advisor to the Minister of the Interior in Afghanistan, where he had specific responsibility for improving the capacity of both the Ministry of the Interior and the Afghan National Police, an organization of 157,000 personnel with an operating budget of $1.8 billion. Martin transitioned out of the armed forces in 2018 after 33 years of public service. Today, he is Operations Director of CyberPRISM, Maritime and Oil and Gas Cybersecurity Specialists. Martin, during your time in the Royal Marines, you commanded the full spectrum of Britain's amphibious capability, from small, highly specialised teams to organisations with thousands of people. How would you compare the leadership styles necessary for these very different orders of magnitude?
1: Good morning, Gemma. It's great, <laughs> great to be here. Uh, And it's a good question. Uh, I think the first thing I'd like to say is that some things remain the same. So the primacy of people, the ability to motivate people, is a prerequisite for leaders, whether you're working with a very small team or an extremely large organisation. The ability to remain calm, what we sometimes call steadiness under fire. Uh, The Americans have a great term for it, comfortable in the stampede. So if you're going to lead people through difficult circumstances, you need to be the one at the eye of the hurricane, remaining calm, giving the direction, but more than that, giving the confidence that your people around you need. Some things, however, clearly change as an organisation expands, gets bigger and you take on bigger and bigger sort of challenges. Uh, I suppose the most obvious one to me was realising that you're no longer the expert. So as the organisation you're leading gets bigger, you're drawing in more and more specialisations. And that moves you out of your your comfort zone quite quickly. You become more the chairman. Uh, You need to be adept at using other people's expertise and knowing whether they're getting it right or wrong without necessarily having a deep experience of, of that line of business yourself. The second thing that occurs is distance. So large organizations operate over distance, spread throughout the country, or in the case of the Royal Marines, you know, there was a, the period when we had organizations operating on all five continents of the world at any one time, with sort of uh, me trying to control it from southwestern England. Um, so that distance introduces its own complexities and challenges. Uh, communication might be difficult. It's certainly going to be less frequent. So you need to be disciplined about how you communicate. If you're only communicating with someone once a day, and it might be on the end of a a radio, then you need to know exactly what information you want from them and exactly what information you're going to uh, impart. As this organisation, or the organisation, has become bigger and more complex, as a leader, I think you become much more involved in maintaining the culture So you may well ask yourself, and you will often ask yourself, usually at about 3 o'clock in the morning, how on earth do I keep this sort of multifarious organisation on track? But laying down the culture and making sure that broadly everyone is thinking in the same way is a pretty good start because you are not going to be as immersed in the detail as you were when you were part of a group of, say, 30 people. Uh, And that brings in delegation. Uh, And to that extent, delegation really is the art of leadership. Uh, We have a a phrase in the military called mission command. And what that really means is that you're giving people their missions, but you don't have the ability or indeed the desire to sit on their shoulders and tell them how to do it day by day. So you're telling them what to do, but not how to do it. You're delivering your intent, and you need to do this in a really uh, careful and clear way because they must understand what you intend to achieve having delivered your intent you need to let them get on with it and and that implies uh, quite a measure of trust
0: you talked in the earlier part of that answer about um and i might paraphrase paraphrasing here being comfortable in the stampede and being that calm in the eye of the storm is this some a skill that you can learn and develop or do you think this is something that's more inherent in certain individuals and that's what makes them good leaders um,
1: I think it's a bit of both. I think there's probably got to be something in you to start with, but it can absolutely be developed. Um, and one of the things I had noticed uh, when comparing the military to civilian life is the amount of training that the military does, and indeed the amount of, of leadership training. Um, so there's plenty of time uh, and all sorts of facilities to allow you to develop yourself. You just need that sort of germ, uh, and of course what you need is the desire to do it. Leadership isn't easy. It exposes you, it's dangerous reputationally as well as as physically uh, and you've really got to want to do it.
0: Thank you. Peter, how has your experience in the military helped to prepare you for business leadership? Obviously you transitioned out of the military um, after 11 years, so slightly earlier than Martin.
2: Yeah, um, morning Gemma and um, thanks for inviting me here to speak along with Martin. Um, Actually just picking up on the point you mentioned there about uh, what martin called being comfortable in the, the, the stampede i think one of the things moving to um you know a more ordered world um in, in some senses of, of, of the corporate world um i hadn't realized how much of the time in the royal marines is is is, uh, is spent in training you how to deal with life in the pressure cooker um and really, a huge amount of the training and of the real experience is under a lot of, you know, under a great deal of pressure. Um, and you know, we used to kind of have a feeling that in the armed forces, the only time you really get to know somebody is what is, is when you see what they're like under the gun. Um, and that's where stress really comes into things. And it's whether or, it's how people react when they're in a position of stress, whether or not they're able to you know wrestle the monster to the ground or not. Um, and I think, because of the consistency of training um, you know of keeping people at, you know at that level of intensity which the military does very well, um, I think that it probably does increase the chances of them reacting well um, you know under the gun as it were or in the stampede as as, as martin said but um, beyond that point i mean on leaving the Royal Marines, it wasn't immediately obvious to me quite how much I was leaving behind me. Um, The Marines have a very proud history, and they've got an an adaptive culture, but a consistent culture, and it's an organisation which recognises the supremacy of the team over the individual. Um, It's got very high levels of expectation, and with that comes very high levels of commitment from everybody who... um, in terms of, of, of serving, and you know, serving is very much what the culture is as opposed to taking. Whereas, on joining the commercial world, although the organization which I joined is one with a long history and quite a strong culture, I found reasonably quickly that there are some major and significant differences. One of those is that leadership, by which I mean true leadership, at every level within the organization is far more honoured and is a far more important aspect to the Royal Marines than it is in any other walk of civilian life that I've experienced. Secondly, corporate culture, it might surprise you to hear, at least in my opinion, is far more subservient and and obedient than it is in the Corps. And thirdly, that levels of transparency and accountability are strangely less of a priority in the civilian world Um, than they are in the military. And I think all of that has quite strong ramifications for corporate performance.
0: Peter, we were talking before we started the recording um, about this concept of obedience. And can you expand a little bit in terms of what you mean by that from a leadership perspective?
2: Yeah. um, I mean, in the armed forces, we used to have a concept which is called briefback. You've already heard Martin talk about mission command, which is where every individual proceeds Onto the, the battlefield, if you like, understanding the intent of the commander, they need to understand. They need to be technically expert at their role, of course, and they need to know that they can react when they need to react and immediately seek forgiveness, not permission. Um, it, it, if you like, they need to know what the intent of their commander is and the plan one level up and uh, sorry, two levels up from from where they are. Um, that goes back to the point that I made about transparency and accountability. There can't really be any secrets. You know, we're all going from A to B and we're going together and we're going to achieve everything that we, we, we do on the way together. And I didn't find that that was the way at all in a corporate world. There's a lot more secrecy, there's a lot more um, reasons why, uh, not, not reasons that I agree with, but people do tend to keep information to themselves because information is power and very often you'll find that people are solving for themselves as an individual or for a small group as opposed to solving for the team um, and so the the other thing is that the, 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 the currency of motivation tends to be money in the corporate world which is not the case in the military um, and that's a transactional currency that brings with it a transactional type of culture, um, and if the person who, paying you, who is paying you tells you the jump, your only real question is going to be how I, um, as opposed to uh, you know, who are you looking out for here, are you looking out for the team, or are you, are you, and um, I think that's why it ends up being that way. Certainly I was amazed at the levels of blind obedience that I saw when I first went into the corporate world that I had not seen in any of my 11 years in the Royal Marines.
0: Thank you. Um, This kind of leads quite neatly into my next question which is around this perception that we have that military style leadership is actually perceived to be quite (coughs) autocratic. Um, Martin, would you say this is a fair perception?
1: Well, we've just heard Pete tell us that uh, leadership in in the civilian world can be very autocratic uh, and sometimes it has to be so the answer is sort of yes and no, it it depends. Orders are orders uh, and that's very clear. Uh, and when you're in that contact battle, facing the enemy, you can't afford for people to hesitate sometimes. Uh, on the other hand, you've got to bring your people with you, and bring them with you under the most trying, difficult circumstances, where there is extreme danger, you may be taking casualties, and you don't do that through autocracy alone, noting that you know, we're all volunteers in the military now. Um, and that's quite an important sort of cultural aspect to it. Um, I see huge dangers in autocratic leadership. Um, if you're promoting a culture where there is an unwillingness to challenge, then you really stand in to danger. You know, the sort of "give me the bad news" idea. Uh, when I was commanding the larger organisations in the Royal Marines, probably my biggest fear was that people just wouldn't tell me what was going wrong and, and it's quite a, I think it's quite a genuine fear. Uh, luckily, in the Royal Marines, people tend to be relatively questioning, uh, and there is this sort of seminal moment, you know, you, when you'll, you give a set of orders, say, so we're going to go and do this, we're going to go and take this hill or assault this beach or whatever, and, at, and you finish, and at the end you say, uh, right, well, uh, are there any questions? And, and stand by, because there will be, and there will be lots of them. However, I was always comfortable that after we'd done that and we'd been through that period... Um, people would shoulder their packs and do what they had been told to do without overly questioning. They'd been given an opportunity to question. We'd probably adjusted the plan on that basis as well. Having done that, then we all, we all put the plan into, into action. Um, I mean, the Royal Marines, if it's founded on anything, it's founded on mutual respect. So we all train at the same place. We all do the same tests. We see each other in training. Uh, and you, you very much earn the right to lead. So, you know, when, when you achieve a higher leadership position in the Royal Marines, you tend to be a pretty known quantity to a lot of the people that you're, you're leading. That helps you develop a sort of shared vision. And probably more important than that, a shared definition of success. You know, what are we all trying to achieve here? And, and how are we going to achieve it? Um, willingness to take risks is important as well. So if you're going to bring your people with you, then they need to know that you're prepared to take the risks. That's really easy when you're in your twenties, operating with small groups, you know, all under fire at the same time, or whatever. As you become more senior, yeah, it doesn't tend to happen. We don't like to get senior officers killed too often. Uh, but there are, there are cases of senior officers who are extremely good at just reminding their troops that they are prepared to take that risk. And Rommel was a, was a master at this. So he would leave his staff to crunch the numbers on the plan when they are planning the next assault. He'd go to the front and he would do his reconnaissance. But it was also a way of showing himself to his troops and showing his troops that he would take risk in the face of enemy to get the information he needed for his for his further planning. So, so it's a balance. Um, you know, command can be autocratic. It is lonely. It has to be because the responsibility is on your shoulders. There is a requirement to separate yourself from other people in order to make the difficult uh, the difficult decisions and in many ways that's actually harder the lower down the tree that you are you know it's often called the corporal's dilemma because the corporal is someone who's been one of the basic marines in his section and he's been promoted to lead them so he's effectively leading his friends that's actually probably the most difficult leadership position in in the corps much more difficult than being commandant general
0: and, I, and I'm hearing that there's this almost this balance to strike between getting that separation but also staying grounded and connected.
1: Yeah, I think there's an awful lot of work you can do before you get into the battle. So what you really want to do is have your discussions, and build your shared visions and shared definitions, take all the questions in training and in the run into an operation. The more you can do that, then the quicker people will relac- react to the changes that you're going to give them during the operation.
0: Thank you, Martin. We've touched already on the comparison between military style leadership and, or military and business, um, but be really, really interested to learn more about your experiences of the transition from military into the corporate world.
2: Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, from what I would say about that is when I first uh, um, entered the corporate world it wasn't so obvious to me what the differences were. Uh, my experience at an investment bank certainly did have some similarities to the military in the sense that um, in my experience there was a formal and demanding training programme which you have to pass and then on successful completion of that you get assigned to a team and then you work hard to do well in that team. Um, it's more the marginal differences that start to come out afterwards some of which I've mentioned already um, and a lot of that probably comes with the way that individuals are incentivised um, and again as we mentioned before when the reward is money um, which is an individual and a transactional thing the behaviour within a group can also become that way and certainly without the leadership and the culture to uh, drag people you know, up from that Then that's probably where you're going to end up. That's probably the default position. Um, Now, you know, the Royal Marines, I would say, is not a transactional organization. It's a well led and living organizational organism. Um, It's very long term in its existence and, you know, hopefully in its future. Um, It's deeply rooted and um, it's a very strong affinity group. Some of the points that Martin mentioned earlier about the fact that everyone trains together, you know, everyone's got a similar um, code of conduct, uh, and the communication is incredibly strong. Um, And one of the things that Martin mentioned just now was about the the concept of of brief back. So after um, a team's been given its orders, comes the brief back, where they'll not only ask questions, but they'll be asked to brief back and and explain what, in in, in fact, the, 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 the plan is to make sure that everybody knows and they can proceed on understand the intent of the commander. And that, in, that creates uh, an incredible tightness uh, and an incredible you know, momentum uh, around the communication. And I'd say that investment banks aren't like that across the board um, and the trust, which can largely be taken for granted in the Royal Marines, isn't so easy to believe in when you're in a bank where people resign and they transfer back and forth from other organizations for the benefit of individual and short term gain in a way that you know, doesn't happen um, in the military. And then touching on another point which Martin mentioned uh, as he got more senior, for me, as I got more and more responsibility, um, I found the only way that I could uh, adapt was to take the formal leadership training that I'd learned in the Royal Marines. Uh, and the teamwork and the commitment that comes with that and apply it within a commercial context. Um, and many of the principles are human principles of behaviour and they they can in fact be uh, applied across the board but the advantage of the military way, in my view anyway, is that there is um, far less heat loss when you're working with people whose interest is... Um, in um, it is it, it, it's in the team than it is with people whose interest is personal and therefore often at
1: odds with the long-term aims of the organisation. Um, well, general, I've only been out of the Royal Marines for a year, so uh, but but I can give you some sort of early thoughts. I mean. Technically, it seems to me to be more a question of language than expertise in terms of what we're doing in business as opposed to the the pure leadership aspect. So I I reckon that about 75% of what I do with cyberprism is essentially common to what I'm doing in the Royal Marines. In the Royal Marines, i built organisations and led them. That's what we're doing in cyberprism. Uh, The two key strands of my career in the Royal Marines were information superiority and maritime security. Well, Here I am, you know, in a cybersecurity company working primarily in oil and gas and shipping. So there's a lot of technical read-across. People will always tell you that the big leap is to understand the profit motive uh, and the bottom line. And I think there's some truth in that. But in the Marines, we are wedded to success. It is that unremitting pursuit of success and excellence. And there is read-across there. We are... I, I would say the Royal Marines are probably the sort of more entrepreneurial end of the armed forces uh, and we're used to risk taking uh, and actually more important, we're used to risk calculation so there's, there's a lot of read across technically in leadership terms the main difference I've noticed is that it's sort of as Peter as Pete said the teams can appear to be less close because there's less shared experience so a lot of military culture is to built on shared experience, you might have trained at the same place, you wear the same uniform, been through the same operations, whatever it is, Um, and that's more difficult to achieve in a commercial organisation, where people are going home at night to a very different environment, and you just don't have that much shared experience, people are moving around very quickly as Pete says, so the one thing I'm trying to concentrate on is actually building shared experience in the team. You know, people constantly talk about sort of celebrating success and that sort of thing. Actually, I have realised how important that sort of thing is when you've got to build shared experience really quickly without the sort of solid foundations that the military give you.
0: Mm, an interesting challenge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> perhaps more of a question for you, Peter, seeing as you um, transitioned out of military uh, earlier than Martin, but how much do you think of your leadership style or your kind of leadership values have been defined by your experience in the military?
2: I think they were in almost entirely uh, shaped by my training and my leadership in the military, partly because you know, from the age of you know, 18 to 29, I suppose they're the formative years of your life. Secondly, the, the pace and the intensity of that training which I mentioned earlier, the, the life permanently in the pressure cooker um, is, um, it, it, it is, it is a place where you need to learn fast and you need to learn how to adapt and how to be Know fast in your decision making, not careless, but uh, as, as thorough as you can possibly be. And then, you know, even at times of ambiguity, you, it, when you're certain enough, you move. Um, and you know that brings all sorts of other, you know, interesting dynamics uh, around it, involved in you know, as Martin mentioned, calculating, not just taking risk, but sort of calculating risk and then taking it. Um, whereas when I joined um, you know, a professional, you know, civilian, commercial organisation, the priorities are on different things. Um, there's a huge amount of work done uh, these days. I mean, obviously, on getting the technical aspects of the business, you know, correct, understood. In my case, we had to pass certain exams, etc. None of that's particularly difficult. You know, it's own risk; it takes time, and it's absolutely got to be done but there's a huge amount of time spent making sure that there is going to be, um, there's gonna be obedience at all levels. Um, and the more I come to think of it, the more I think that that's institutionally put in place because they can't rely on the trust and the, the, you know, the mechanisms that come with that common shared culture, um, which we were you know, the beneficiaries of having uh, you know, in, in, in the armed forces. Um, and that's probably why they're more autocratic and dictatorial organizations than the military is. Um, you know, I also think uh, you know Martin mentioned you know the taxonomy, the commonality of language which is used, which is a very convenient way of describing things that also you know has an embracing element to it as well in the sense that we all understand that we know what that word means um, and it's vernacular, it's slang and everything else, but, it's the, but everyone uses it. And it all contributes to the continuum of culture which goes with, um, you know, with, with, with that shared experience. Um, I mean, I'd say it's almost, an, uh, it's almost impossible to replace that part of the culture of the raw rooms, but going back to what I said earlier, I do think that some of these principles are univer- they 're human they 're universal, uh, and they can and should be applied across uh, corporates way more effectively than they can, particularly around the subject of communication
0: mm. and you both there 's this recurring theme you have both touched on the power of having that shared vision. And that shared definition of success which really was very strong um, in the Royal Marines. How about when you were involved in other organisations, so um, Peter perhaps in Bank of America Merrill Lynch and Goldman, Martin perhaps in your latter roles as an advisor uh, with NATO, how, did you, how difficult was it to start to influence culture and remould and change uh, an existing culture and how did you bring people with you as leaders?
1: I starts off on that. Well, if what you're trying to achieve involves a change or at least an adjustment of culture, then I'd suggest to you, you, you know from the outset that it's going to be difficult. There's, there's going to be a challenge there. Cultural issues tend to give us wicked problems because of all of the sort of personal and personality issues involved. Um, it helps to be inclusive. You really cannot do this on your own, especially, you know, technically you can probably map out you know, a new organisational diagram for, for, your, for your company, organisation, ministry or whatever. Um, but bringing people with you is where it really counts. Uh, I mean, leaders are responsible for vision, creating conditions for success. They don't have a monopoly on good ideas and you need to be drawing that out, out, of, out of people. So for us in the military, culture is everything. You take your eye off it and it can spin out of control very quickly. So, talking about cultural change within the military, and my advice is um, execute cultural change in small increments. Don't try, don't get yourself into a position where you have to make that huge cultural change, because that's all, always bound to be very difficult. So, Rom Ring's culture has been built over its 354 year existence, but it's changed as the environment around us has changed, as the people we recruit have changed. We've adjusted it. Whenever we've had to make a, a considerable change, it's been difficult. So just keep that sort of wheel turning, is what I'd say. And you can always build on what you have. So we haven't actually, in the Marines, had to make a big cultural shift. But there are things that will come in, and, and certainly other people would think that they would challenge our culture. I mean, so an example might be uh, women in the Royal Marines. We're recruiting our first women to serve in the Royal Marines ever, and a lot of people outside the Marines would say, well, this is going to be a big cultural challenge for you. But actually, I'm not so sure that's true, because you've got an awful lot you can work on. So our culture is based, amongst other things, on, on the constant, this constant pursuit of excellence. Um, you know, I, someone said to me once, the advent of women in the Royal Marines will challenge your inclusivity. And I sort of said, well, Royal Marines very inclusive organisation as long as you can pass the tests. And there is a real strength in there. Because the women that want to join the Royal Marines want to pass those tests. They want to test themselves against that standard and achieve it. And the men who are currently in the Royal Marines will accept anyone who comes in who can soldier at that standard, who can pass those tests. So actually, you know, this, this might not be quite as difficult as some people would have thought. So internally, if you 're changing culture, great, do it in small increments, and therefore think ahead and work out where you 're going next with it and how you 're going to change the way you lead, the way you train people just to take account of modern circumstances. You then talked about butting up against a completely different culture, um, such as you know a foreign foreign ministry, for mm. instance, and that that becomes very difficult. Um, one of the, the cultural changes we went through in the military, I think, uh, after the Cold War was to stop talking about intelligence and start talking about understanding. So, the first thing is you cannot deal with a, a, a different culture, a culture that is different from Western Europe, like the culture in, say, Afghanistan, unless you're prepared to really understand it. Even then, you know, you'll never have the deep understanding that an Afghan would have. So, when I operated in Afghanistan, I had Afghan advisors who I trusted and without them I would have got absolutely nowhere. I just wouldn't have had the cultural understanding to operate in that environment. Once you've understood it, you know, are we really changing culture here? Probably not. I think we're trying to work out how we can fit the two cultures together and get the best result out of it. So it's more about understanding in that circumstance than than changing an age-old culture, which actually goes back long before 354 years. So... It's all really founded on your willingness and ability to understand, understand the culture, understand the motivation of the person at the other side of the table from you. What does he or she want to get out of that situation and why? And what what pressures uh, are impinging upon them that that wouldn't be if we were sat in Edinburgh doing this? Uh, And it's really about that level of understanding. And if you're really prepared to immerse yourself And understand to that extent, then I think you can achieve an awful lot by mixing cultures. But it's not easy.
0: You make you make it sound so easy, then Martin.
1: (laughs) He does.
2: I mean, I found it very interesting listening to what Martin um, has said. I mean, I've worked for four organisations: the Royal Marines, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, and now Castle European. And all of them are very, very different. Um, You know what the Royal Marines has is an adaptive but very consistent. Culture, um, but the advantage it has, I think, is that it's, it, you know, it, it, it's, uh, if you like, paid for and owned by one nation state. It operates with allies and it operates against enemies. Um, but, you know, since 1664, when it was the Duke of Maritime and Albany's regiment, it's gone from being an acorn to an oak tree uh, and it's had complete control of the adapting of its culture. Now that's very much the same as the experience was at Goldman Sachs, which went from being a small organisation, you know, in Wall Street, you know, a sort of money-changing firm, uh, more or less, into being what it is now, which is a vast, uh, you know, global investment bank. Bank of America and Merrill Lynch didn't have the opportunity to go from a from Acon to Oaktree in the way that the Reigns did and Goldman Sachs has, in the sense that it was the coming together of two organisations. First of all, Merrill Lynch being bought out by Bank of America, and then Bank of America uh, having its own um, uh, issues. But it was the sort of coming together of two cultures that have that that have you know different backgrounds, and to try and make them one. So to try and make them one culture is uh, is a significant challenge, which the leadership uh, of that organisation of BANR knows that they've got to address. And then finally, with where we are in Castle European. Renewable energy company here in Edinburgh. We're obviously a complete startup. Uh, we think we're on the cusp of getting our first project, um, but you know what our culture will be has, you know, in many ways yet to be determined. What I would say is um, that the, the aspects that I think need to be thought about here is first of all um, to be able to have a culture. Then it helps really, you've got to have a, a rock-solid platform on which your players can perform their act, whatever that may be. I mean, gymnasts can't perform on the moving deck of a ship, right? It has to be rock-solid, and that's certainly um, you know, an advantage, which um, which the Royal Marines has. Um, then it comes down to who's your team, and then who are you facing off against, whether that be in you know, an aggressive military sense or it almost be in a client sense. It's who who the team on your platform are facing off against in order to achieve what they need to achieve, Uh, understanding what it is they need to achieve, understanding who their allies in this are and who their enemies in this are, or or those who are not friendly forces, should we say, Um, and then what resources you have available to complete your task with. And this constant communication back and forth and the trust and the the transparency and accountability the communication basically all comes down to that is what either gives energy or becomes a circuit breaker and kills the energy off um, immediately but I'm sure communication is an incredibly important part of that. You don't have a culture just so you can have a culture and you're not a team just because you say you're a team you're a team with a culture because then the sum of the parts are worth more than the, or, or at least that the whole is worth more than some of the parts, because you get all the uh, added advantages of good communication, uh, and, and and energy and momentum, and you can deal with problems. Critically important is, um, and I, I know Martin will back me up on this. The the person on the ground, or however you know whatever vernacular we use, whether it's a corporate or a military organization, or even a sports team, it's the person who's critically under pressure who has to make a decision and then they have to be allowed to make that decision now you you obviously can't have bad people in those positions of responsibility but responsibility goes right down to the lowest level and that's how you achieve leverage within your organization
0: if you were to pass on a piece of advice to the next generation of business leaders based on your personal experiences what would that be
2: uh, well, you know, go back to what I just said there, I think the single most important aspect of any business enterprise is energy. Um, I always look at the communication links within a company. I look at transparency and accountability to get a sense of how vibrant the energy levels are. Because once you're beyond just the numbers on like the balance sheet and the financial reporting, what you're left with and what really uh, is going to determine Know, what happens next is in my opinion, is about communication. If the leadership is good, then the leader will feel an obligation to articulate a strategy which is coherent, which is workable and which uh, the leader knows will get buy-in. And then if, he, if, 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 if buy-in is achieved, then comes the ability to execute on that strategy and then com- keep communication tight, keep it vibrant, keep it appropriately urgent. Uh, at all times um, and that's especially difficult to do in tough times uh, and, and that's one other point I'd make uh, is the difference between the good times when you have momentum and everyone can just hop on the bandwagon and, you know, and, and, and go with it versus the bad times which is where you do need to make those critical important decisions um, which really define what leadership is and that's where the team is looking for you know, the, the, the leader not just to make the right judgment, but to keep the communication very hot as well.
0: Thank you. Martin?
1: Um, <clears throat> in terms of the organisation, the leadership of the organisation, I'll pick up on what Pete says. What, what really fascinates me in many ways is the balance between confidence and overconfidence. It's a very prevalent idea, I think, in, in sport, uh, it's very germane to what the Royal Marines do. Goodness knows a Royal Marine needs to be confident to do what what he does. Uh, but an overconfident Royal Marine is a danger to himself and others. So it's how you strike that balance as the leader, how you give people the confidence they need, but avoid the overconfidence that courts disaster is really worth thinking about, I think. And then personally... Um, well, when when I was uh, just completing young officer training at the Commando Training Centre um, down in Devon, uh, in the last week, you know, a number of people came to spoke, speak to us. And, but the, the person I really remember is a then-General called Julian Thompson, who'd led Three-Commander Brigade on, on the Falkland Islands. Um, and uh, he said that you, you probably expect me as a General to stand here and, and give you those seminal points that will unlock the mysteries of the world for you and lead you through your highly successful careers and i'm afraid i'm here to say that i I can't do that but what i can do is tell you what a general said to me x years ago when i was in the same situation and he said that in your career you'll frequently especially if you're in a a leadership position be faced with really difficult challenges conundra to the extent that your logical mind really can't process what to do about it. He says there is always that little voice inside your head that knows what is right. Uh, I think you know, he's talking about instinct as much as anything else. But my advice is, listen to that voice. Always do what you know to be right.
0: So I'm hearing energy from Peter and this balance of, Confidence and overconfidence, and also backing your instinct and backing your gut. Thank you. Um, I'd like to wrap up with one final question for you both, and uh, that is what has been the most enjoyable experience for you personally in your careers so far?
1: Well, that's easy, it's working with Pete. <laughs>
0: um,
1: a, huge, a huge privilege. But generally, and seriously, it is the quality of the people. So I, I, I was lucky, I got to spend 33 years with some of the most professional, engaging and courageous people in the world, um, and, and that was a huge privilege and, and you know, an unrepeatable opportunity.
2: Yeah, I, mean, look, I, I would say as well that the Royal Marines were the defining years of my working life, and I think you've heard that loud and clear, I'm not going to dwell too much further on that. Um, the quality of the people is very high also at many organisations outside the Royal Marines and not have a monopoly on that. Um, and certainly that was the case at both of the banks where I worked and it is in the renewable energy business. But um, I think that every great experience that I have had has involved one critical element, and that's the element of risk. Um, and what I would say, uh, rather than give a, a specific example of the most enjoyable experience, I'd say that every one of the, 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 the greatest experiences is are ones which involve risk. And if you're not taking risk, then you're not pushing the boundaries, and if you're not pushing the boundaries, then you're not living. Um, and you know, the corporate risks that I took were nothing like as consequential as the risks that Martin will have been exposed to uh, during um, you know, his much longer military career than me, but the principles are, I believe, the same.
0: Thank you. Martin, Peter, it's been absolutely wonderful uh, having you on my podcast or on the School for CEOs podcast. Um, One thing that I find truly inspiring uh, sitting across the table from you is the humility uh, in the way that you talk about everything that you've achieved in your experiences. So um, for me personally, that's that's hugely inspiring. So thank you very much for coming to join us. And uh, I look forward to sharing this recording with our audience. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you, you, Gemma. It's a pleasure.